Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Can a single event make you change your outlook on life and get a new perspective? According to Roger Williams and my daddy, yes. Roger is the host of Crossing It Off podcast, where he's inspiring people and empowering them to cross items off of their bucket list. And he's doing that too. Roger Williams, welcome. Tell me about that art in the background. Jeez, that's a long story. It's a poster from 1983 that an art, a comic book artist did that's it's a compilation it's like a all the characters out of the book i bought it it was like five dollars back at the time it was a big deal for me to buy it at some point i forget when but my dad kind of stole it and mounted it for me and so that was a pretty cool thing because that was not something that we kind of shared together actually my whole my whole setup back here is basically a shrine to my dad's so it's you know well you are on the right show nice transition <laughs> buddy there you go I love it. All right, let's talk about the shrine to daddy. Is that really you want to go there? Sure. Yeah, we let's do, go there. Yeah, we can do that. I mean, I'm not going to show everything, but uh, my favorite piece is this piece. It's Luthez. He was the world championship in professional wrestling all through the 50s and 60s. And my something my dad and I shared as I was growing up and learned that he was kind of into it. And so it was kind of our bonding point, professional wrestling. And so that's, you know, he had gotten that. His dad was a alcohol distributor. And so it's a promotional piece for a beer company. And when my grandmother passed away, my dad said, do you want anything? And I said, I want the Luthez poster. And he gave it to me and I didn't know it until just when he gave it to me, but he has a little piece of paper with it that was, that said to Steve, which is my dad from your pal Luthez. So it's got an autograph from Luthez on it. And it's, it's something that we've bonded over our whole entire lives together. He recently passed away. So yeah, so kind of all the stuff over there, a lot of it is about my dad and just kind of what he meant to me. So. Wow. That's really sweet. I'm so sorry about your loss. I yeah, know well, that's, you... that's like what your entire book is about too. Yes, I'm I'm in the process of writing a book and it's it's about both those things. It's about professional wrestling and my father. My grandfather and he didn't bond. My grandfather was kind of a jerk and he kind of had two families and he, you know, my dad got the short end of that stick being the youngest and not really wanted. And so that hindered him from building bonds with me when I was younger. And I resented that a lot without understanding. You know, when we're young, we're stupid. We don't really understand what's going on. We're never taught to have empathy for our parents. And it wasn't until I was like 32 that we actually sat down and at the night of his mom's funeral, exactly to, we just kind of sat down and I said to him, 
you know, not expecting anything. I just said, Hey, I want you to know that I admire you from, for becoming her best friend over the last five years when she didn't deserve it. And it just kind of opened up the floodgates and we, you know, just went back and forth Said, this is how you hurt me. And the other person said, sorry, that's, this is what I was going through. And the other person would say, this is how you hurt me. We just went back and forth for about four hours. <laughs> it's like three o'clock in the morning. We finally kind of call it quits. But since then I got 20 good years with him being one of my best friends. And, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was, I was too immature. I was, I was never taught to have empathy for him. Um, one of the stories in the book that I enjoyed writing was that he had this blue lazy boy chair that he spent a lot of time in with his headphones on and he loved music and he shared that with my sister and my brother and I. Uh, the love of music definitely got passed down to us and he had probably, I don't know, he, he had probably like 500 vinyl albums and he would you know put on, drop a drop a record and put on his headphones and you did not disturb him. And it was one of those things that I just, you know, I always, you know, was sitting there nine, 10 years old going, Hey, I'm here. Spend some time with me, connect with me. But I just never understand the depths of, you know, whether it was depression or whatever it was for him that in the book, I talk about it, you know, he's holding court. The King is in his throne. And it was, he was holding court with the Grateful Dead and the Doobie Brothers and, you know, Bruce Springsteen and, you know, all these people that he enjoyed listening to. And, and that was really his time that he got to decompress. And I just never understood that or had empathy for that until I was much older and understood, you know, kind of what happened in his childhood and how he survived that. And part of that was, you know, he didn't really, wasn't able to connect, but professional wrestling was definitely someplace that we connected. We went to shows together. He took me to WrestleMania eight. We really bonded over that a lot of times. And we would talk on the phone when we were long distance, that would be the center of some of the conversation would be about what was going on in the wrestling world. And I've kind of duplicated that with my son. So my son is a huge wrestling fan, always has been, and it's changed over the years, like most things. The internet's really changed how he was a fan. So I got to learn a lot from him and really just trying to break those cycles, you know, that we grow up with as far as bonding. And, and so that's really what the book is about, how my dad couldn't bond with his father and it affected our relationship. And now me trying to end that circle of neglect almost. So, so yeah, that's what the book's about. Did you find that since your dad had a hard time bonding with you that you at any time have had a hard time bonding with your own kid? I have two daughters and a son. My son's the youngest. The funny thing is that I'm the youngest of three. My dad was the youngest of two. My grandfather was the youngest of six. So it was kind of like this, this generational thing that, you know, trauma that's kind of passed down and passed down. And I think I was so acutely aware of missing it, missing those bonds with my dad that I consciously, I think when I became a parent wanted to kind of break some of those cycles. We all hit and miss as parents. You know, no one's the best or the perfect. We can be good at it, but we can't be perfect at it. You know, the times when I probably should have been listening stronger to my son and his needs, but you know, we've got a great relationship and he, you know, he communicates well. He struggles with some mental illness himself and I'm constantly praising him for doing the work, which was something my dad certainly didn't get, something I certainly didn't get. So it's one of those tangible things that I think I've kind of honed in on and said, okay, you know, if this is, you know, you struggle with this, that's okay. And I'm here for you. And it doesn't, you know, change the way I view you or see you as a person. I love you. And, and so it's, yeah, I think there was, I think I missed it so much growing up. I was so cognizant of the fact that I wasn't getting what I wanted, that when I became a parent, I tried to change that as best I could. Was it hard for you to say those things though? 
to my dad or to my son? To your son or either or, I guess. Yeah. My dad and I struggled a lot. There are a lot of instances that will be in the book, but where he put his attention other places. It was a struggle getting up to that, you know, that night when we sat there and hashed everything out. Once we did, we had a great relationship. He really did. You know, I'm very, very fortunate as a man to have a lot of really good relationships with other guys. That some sometimes men can struggle with making those relationships, those bonds. I have two friends that I've known for 35 years plus that we've all traveled the world and been different locations, but we still are close, close friends. So I understood what that male bonding was. And once my dad and I had that catharsis, we were able to, he became part of that crew at some level, not directly. He wouldn't go and hang out with us, but he was in that inner circle of male friends for me. And so, so things got a lot easier after that point for my son, I knew he struggled but I didn't know to the degree that he struggled with some of his anxiety and some of the things he has going on. And that, that recently really shocked me. And when we were having the conversation, he was being open about it. I directly asked him, I was able to directly ask him, did I, did I contribute to this? Did I, did I cause more trauma? Did I add anything on to that? He was like, no, I don't think so. But that was concern for me that I wanted to have that conversation with him to say, because if there was on the spot, I would have you know, been glad to say, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I never wanted to wait around 32 years with my children like, like I did with my dad. So, so I try to be as open and vulnerable with them. And hopefully they do the same with me. And my, my son has. Did you tell your dad that he contributed? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but I think that that conversation was so good because I finally found empathy for my dad. And I don't think that that's something that it's very hard to teach your children to have empathy for you. It's, I think it's something that you have to come to grips with as an adult child for yourself and, and figure that out, what that looks like. You know, I think the more vulnerable you are as a parent, the less likely that is. But I think, again, it's super hard to root for children who want everything and think that your world is to provide for them, for you to say to them, you know, hey, cut me some slack, <laughs> you know, and this is what I'm going through. And you, you try to protect them and all that kind of stuff. So we're part of the cause as well, but from them not knowing that. And I think that trying to be as honest and open as I could, especially with my son, and we lived together for a long time too. So all through high school and most of his college, we, we roomed together. So it was, uh, so we didn't have a lot of chance to escape each other <laughs> in his formative years. We're pretty brutal and honest with each other. It's uh, been effective and helpful. What would you tell someone who is having trouble finding empathy for a parent? You know, it's the story. It's always the story. You know, you and I, I think are both big on telling stories. And so there, there were stories that I didn't know about my dad. So without giving a lot of way out of the book, my dad was a salesman and he traveled a lot. And there were times when we lived in the East Coast that he would be gone for like two weeks at a time. But there were also times when he'd be like, in the summertime, he'd, be, he'd say, well, get up, come on, let's go. You're going to go with me for a week. And I would just ride with him. And that was a really good experience. But the times that he was gone and came back, I, I always wanted to try to connect with him. You know, 10, 11 years old, 12 years old. And so my way of seeking that, that bond was to say, hey, let's go see a movie. And he'd be like, oh, I already saw that. I saw that while I was gone. And I'd be like, wait a minute what the heck? Why would you go see E.T. without me? Why would you go see Empire Strikes Back without me? That makes no, no sense whatsoever to me. And I was resentful hurt because that would be something that I would want to do with him. And it wasn't until 
I think that night, that conversation a little afterwards, he finally said to me, he said, you know, he said, I worked in the construction business. I, I sold to construction people and that's a tough crowd and they like to go out and drink and they like to go to strip clubs and they like to do these other things that could cause damage to my relationship with your mom. And I love her very much and I don't want to do that. And so that was, that was huge for me of understanding. And, you know, you kind of sink back in your chair and go, oh man, what, what a jerk am I, you know, you know, that I didn't get that. Right. I didn't understand. I didn't know that story. He had to tell me that story and it took him some time to do that. And I'm glad when you did. Did you appreciate his relationship with your mom? It sounds like you did. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was always good to my mom. Comparing my dad as a husband compared to my grandfather as a husband, it's a, it's an easy win <laughs> at some level. They claim that my grandfather's longtime mistress showed up at his funeral, but I didn't know that till later either. My dad had a low bar to, to hurdle, but he did. He loved my mom until his very last day. He absolutely just cherished my mom and, and cared for her and loved her very deeply. And I could see that 55 years, I think, some somewhere around that range. 55, almost 60 years they were married. So you've got to just respect that in general, you know, to say that's a long time to be committed. But as I got older and we had this better relationship, he told me how much he loved his mom. I mean, I remember when I got my divorce, he, you know, we were talking and being honest and, and he said, only one time in my life have I ever wanted to leave your mom. And I believed him. I absolutely believed him. For him, she was just his world and you knew it. Everybody knew it. I think that, again, he was probably trying to break some of those cycles, you know, for himself and some of that trauma that he saw growing up. That was a good thing. I think it was a good thing. Only once? That is rare. What did yes. she do? <laughs> she was struggling with cancer and was very, very depressed and very, very down on the world. And it was, it was hard for him to, to go through that. He said that was the only time that he really ever, when she was struggling with that, she had breast cancer and she was really, really struggling with it. And that kind of brought him down too. And that he said, that was the only time that I ever you know, thought about leaving her. Breast cancer is really hard to go through. I've yeah. seen that in my family as well. Did she outlive him? Yes. Which is, we all were very, very shocked at this point. She's still alive and kicking. He passed. And how did she do treating him when he was going through cancer? You know, that was, it was really tough on her, I think, because it was so quick. It was brain cancer. It was, I can't pronounce the name of it, but it's, it's the kind of cancer that its only job is to kill. Like it doesn't do anything else. It, it was fast. And I don't think, and it was very unexpected. So I think my mom was dealing with a lot. It was very hard for her to see him that way. His strength was always hers. And she relied on that pretty heavily. And so that was, I think, very difficult for her to watch that process. But she also you know, loved him deeply and cared about him and was passionate about being there for him as much as she could. What's really amazing is that most people, I feel like might not get the 20 years that you got. Mm. Like, I feel like some people wait until much longer. So 20 years, yes. I mean, it's never enough time, but mm -hmm. that's amazing that you were able to patch it up and have that much time after. Like, I know some people that have patched it up literally like the week before, the day before, five minutes right. before. Yeah, I was I was super grateful and super lucky to, to have that. And like I said, when I said that to him that night that I that I admired him, I, I wasn't expecting anything. It wasn't, I mean, it was just, just came out of my mouth, right? It wasn't like I was like, okay, this is on my bucket list. I'm gonna cross it off. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna make amends with my dad. It wasn't anything like that. It was just like, an observation I made and, and he was willing to go there. And it was so good that 
after we found out in December that he had the cancer, I said to him the last time I saw him, I said, I can put this off. I can put this trip off. I was planning on going to Europe. I said, I'll just put it off. And he said, he said, if you cancel that trip, I'm going to get out of this bed and kick your ass. And I knew that he could, you know, he still, you know, I still wouldn't mess with him, you know, (laughs) even as a child and an adult, he was a strong cuss. So, but he knew, he just, you know, it was like, you got to go, you can't, you know, this is something that's on your heart, something you got to do. And he wasn't going to be the one person, he wasn't going to be the thing that stopped me from doing it. It was difficult because I had to fly back from Italy to, to the funeral. I wasn't there to help make arrangements and stuff. And at the same time, I think he knew that would be good for me because it really was. It, I wasn't there. I wasn't dealing with all the stuff. I was in communication with my sister and my mom and, and trying to help however I could, you know, being thousands of miles away. But it gave me a lot of time because I was alone to sit and think about, you know, what do I want to say to people and what are, what are the most important things, you know, going on right now and how do I need to deal with this? And I really got that time to process. If I had been local, it would have been pretty tough for me to, to hold it together. And so I think at some level he knew it's like, get out of here because it won't be good if you stay. And so, so I was grateful for that. And he knew me. I love being able to say that. That is really beautiful. And it really ties in nicely with kind of what you're doing now. Like you are stepping away from the grind. You are breaking out of the matrix. You are really doing something different <laughs> for the last year. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I had a health scare in the middle of the pandemic. The hospitals call it a, a cardiac event these days. <laughs> you know, just sitting around thinking about where do I find myself worth? You know, when you're faced with mortality like that a little bit, that's kind of where my head went. It was, you know, where am I finding my self-worth? And for 30 some years, I, I found my self-worth in my job. And I just decided that I no longer wanted to be known for the labor that I performed and who I performed it with or for. And I think that's where a lot of people find their self-worth and there's nothing wrong with that. It's great, but I just wanted more. I wanted to be known for something else. And it was hard because I worked with teenagers you know, for about 25 years. And everyone's like, oh, that must be so fulfilling. That must be so fulfilling. And it was like, yeah, it is, but it's also, you know, it kind of sucks sometimes. And it's, you know, it's hard. And, you know, there's lots of these expectations though, you know, especially in today's world where, you know, you're accessible to anyone at any time at any, at any point with a push of a button. And so, so I wanted to be known more than that. And so I decided that, you know, I'm just going to change all my social media contacts to say that my new job was the head crosser off of my bucket list. And that I was going to focus on this bucket list idea of saying, okay, well, how do I, how do I live this out? And the first thing that I did was go to Spain for a month and do the Camino de Santiago, which is a 790 kilometer trek across Northern Spain. It takes about 30 to 35 days. And it was a great experience and I loved it. And it was something I needed to do. I've been thinking about it for about 11 years and finally decided, okay, I'm this, you know, now's the time I'm going to do this. And when I got back, I had been posting on Instagram and, you know, doing what people do when they, you know, take big adventures and those kind of things. And so I made a reel with all the people that I met along the route. Big part of it is community. That's why a lot of people do the Camino or find on the Camino. And I made this reel of just selfies that I'd taken with all these people that I met and just kind of say thank you. And when I got back to my office, I showed it to someone I'd worked with for like four and a half years. And I showed it to her. And when she was done watching it, she said, I've never seen you that happy before. 
I was glad that that's what she saw because I was, I was super excited. I was super happy, you know, doing what I was doing and having this grand adventure. But I was really also sad when she said that because I've worked with you four and a half years and you've never seen me this happy. Like, I don't want anybody to meet me (laughs) and not see that person that she saw in those pictures. And so I just knew something had to change. And so I quit my job and decided I was going to take an adult gap year. And so I haven't been selling my labor all year and and trying to do only things that bring me joy. How hard is that? (laughs) Not as hard as I think people make it out to be. sometimes it's hard because it's not just about, oh, I like that. I'm going to go do that. I like this. I'm going to go do that. It's also about saying, I don't like that. And so I'm not going to do that. It's saying no sometimes to things that you know are not going to be helpful to you. Or, you know, if I don't feel well, I'm going to say, no, I I don't want to do that because I'm not going to be my best. And I think that's what I'm striving to do is be the best person, be the best human, be the best father, be the best partner as I can be to, to the people around me so that I can bring them joy through that process. It's, it's hard from the standpoint that sometimes people look at it as it's selfish, right? You're, mm. If all you're thinking is I'm bringing myself joy, then it can be in our society. It's like, no, you have to sacrifice. It was like my job. I had to sacrifice all the time, you know, because I was doing this great and wonderful thing. But if I'm not happy, then I'm not fully being the best intentful person I can, whether it's my job, whether it's my relationships, whatever it is, it's easier than you think. But at the same time, it's, it's hard for the people around you sometimes I think to see that. Also, I would imagine that people are like, how do you do that on a budget? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't have a budget. (laughs) So for me, I I decided that I was going to raid my retirement fund, just put it all on the line. You know, the stock market is about risk and reward, a lot less reward these days than than anything. And so I'm kind of glad I took the money out when I did (laughs) because the didn't lose a bunch. So I'm kind of, I'm happy right now. You know, people are like, oh, you created your retirement fund. You got to build all that back up. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll do that. Because, because the reward that I have right now is a thousand times what I could have if I just had that money sitting there someplace losing it in this market. Wow. That is so cool. I also am very curious, like was Spain what you thought it would be? I mean, if you've been thinking about it for 11 years, like what was unexpected and what was like better than expected? Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but it's called The Way with Martin Sheen. It's a great movie. It's fantastic. And it's all about his journey on the Camino de Santiago. And it was part of the reason that I first fell in love with wanting to do it. And I think with anything, sometimes you can spend way too much time, at least I can, researching it. I was just getting these YouTube spirals of just watching Camino videos over and over, you know, just, just and I, and I found some good friends for it, but at the same time, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I've, I've been sitting here for four hours. I need to stop this. And so I, I you know, I bought books, I'd done all that kind of stuff. And I, part of it for me of what I didn't expect was to not be so American. Like I needed to be less American in that process. So like I got a bad knee injury, like second day in. And a lot of it was, is because those first two days, I'm like, oh, I got to get to the next, got to get to the next town. I got to get to the next town. I got to do it quick. And it was that American thing of, I got to get there and I don't want to have FOMO. I want to, you know, be able to go out and hang out with people and drink and have really good food and all those kind of things. And, and I just pushed myself too hard. Whereas if I would have, slow down and just said, okay, you know, when I get there, I get there, it'll be fine. 
you know, and who I get to hang out with is who I get to hang out with. That was distressing because it caused me problems throughout the whole trip. So it was a little, a little hard. I love Spain. I absolutely love Spain. I love the north of Spain. I love what they call tortillas, which is a Spanish omelet. Pamplona is absolutely the best place in the world to get them. And I, you know, I actually went back there for two more weeks when I went back to to Europe and specifically because I'm like, I'm going to eat tortillas all day long. And so I, I loved it. The people were great. The Camino itself was just an awesome experience. I got fully what I expected out of it, you know, which is this community of people that now I call my Camino family. And when I took my three month trip back to Europe, I think I saw 18 people in total from the Camino on that, uh, going back and visiting several of them actually in Costa Rica, but I spent a week in Costa Rica before I went to, to Spain, Spain, then I went to Italy for a couple months, Israel and United Kingdom before I came home. You know, I've got, I've got these friends and these people all over the world now that I just, I just love to keep communicating with and talk to. And, you know, I actually was in Triste, Italy for a month. And wasn't Facebook friends with somebody that I met on the trip. And my last, the day before my last day there, somebody goes, you know, this person lives there, right? And I'm like, no, why didn't anyone not tell me? So we got together that next morning before I left and had coffee and it was awesome. And she was crying because it was just like, you know, all the feels of the Camino came back and it was, you know, it was just, it was great. It was awesome. So I loved my trip and, you know, doing the Caminos probably one of the cheapest ways to see Spain that there is so okay so I want to know too like what is connecting with people in all of these different places like do people connect differently what did you learn about the people from the different places that you've been like what was kind of your approach well, on the Camino, it's easy. You're all walking the same direction every day. You're all you're all going west. You're all trying to get to Santiago de Compostela. And and the way that the Camino was set up is you don't have to, but there are several guidebooks that say, okay, it takes 32 days, takes 35 days or whatever. So you you wind up being kind of like on the same schedule. So every night you're winding up in the same location. I was with these Italian kids for about a week. And like every morning, somebody would wake up and the same person would be like, oh, hey, I'm making the hostel reservations. Do you want to join us again tonight? Okay, sure. Somebody else will be texting me. When you get to this town, we've already gone through this town. When you get to this town, you got to go to this restaurant or you got to go see this. And it was interesting because before I left, I was talking to one of my students and telling her about this trip. She goes, there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could do that alone. And I said, without knowing anyone, I said, well, I don't know anybody yet <laughs> it, you're kind of put in a situation where you're sleeping in hostels you're you're all eating together you're winding up you know you might not walk with the same people every single day but you're at least winding up in the same locations you know it kind of forces your hand to be like you, you've got to reach out you've got to talk to people i had one friend who for the first four days like she didn't say anything to anybody and then like the fifth day we got into it, Belorado and the albergue that we were staying at the hostel had a pool. It was August. So we were just having this huge pool party at the albergue and she came out and she started talking to people, you know, it's like she had something to work through and that's fine. And my partner and I, my partner actually met me five days before the end of my journey. And she walked with me the last five days. And that's something that we spent some time talking about. It's like, how do you replicate this when you go home? How do you make those relationships happen? Because you can walk into Starbucks and if you start talking to the person sitting next to you, they're going to think you're crazy, right? Maybe not, but maybe, but there's not this sense of, hey, we're all in this together. 
And, and I think that's really what helped that experience be what it was for me and then why it's so communal. I mean, the same thing can be said about Burning Man or anything like that, where everybody's got kind of the same intention. And so it was, it was a great experience and I loved it. Would I do it again? I'm not sure if I would do it again. I think I kind of want to, but because I don't want to take taxis, Shh, don't tell anybody, but a couple of days I took taxis. So I think I would want to do it again just to like, see, I actually did it all. When you walk, as long as you walk a hundred kilometers, you get a certificate of completion. When you get to Santiago de Compostela, because you have a little booklet that you carry around with you and you, they stamp every time you stay at a hostel or you go to a restaurant or whatever, they stamp it, they put a stamp in your book. And then at the end of the journey, they tally up how many you have and go, yeah, you've got enough stamps where you've traveled that length. Yeah. What else have you learned from travel? I'm a big bucket list person, like I said. And one of the things I've learned is that as I travel with intention, and my intention is for me when I travel is that I'm going to be open to whatever the universe has for me in this experience. And that's been a huge gift in a lot of ways. Like I was in Matera, Italy, and was walking around the town and I ran, literally almost ran into this Salvador Dali sculpture. It's in the middle of this plaza in this town. I'm like, what? You know, this isn't Spain. Why is there a Dolly sculpture here materially? Turns out there's like six. So I was able to walk around the town. There's these six huge Salvador Dolly sculptures just all around the town. And had I not been, as Americans, when we travel, we tend to have an itinerary. Like, I've got to see all these things because you travel so far that people are like, oh, did you go do this? Did you go do that? And if you don't do those things, if you don't do the prescribed, you know, tourist items, then people are like, why did you go? And so I found that if I threw those other people's expectations away and just opened myself up, I have a much better experience. My dad passed when I was in Italy and I was in Triste, Italy, talking to my partner back in Seattle and said, hey, you know, can you bring my suit? She goes, you don't want to wear that suit to your dad's funeral. <laughs> it's, it's blue. It's kind of sparkly. It's something Elvis would almost wear. Um, not quite that gaudy, but, but you know, sort of. And she said, no, you don't want to wear that sports jacket. You need to, you need to get a suit. I'm like, how am I going to get a suit? And so I opened up the Google machine and typed in suits, Triste, Italy, and just wound up like going to this out of the way, tiny tailor in, in Triste, Italy. And I like, walk in, it's this young guy, he's just starting out. And I'm like, I need I go back to the States. I got to go to my dad's funeral and I need a suit. He said, when you need it by, I'm like, like three or four days. He's like, oh no. And he's like, let me look at the rack. And he pulls, he pulls this beautiful suit off the rack and puts it on me. He's like, I can, I can do this. I, you know, I've got a couple of days. I can, I can make the adjustments. It'll be great. Super. You know, and the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, this is a handmade tailored Italian suit. It's going to cost me, you know, more than I've got left. <laughs> I'm going to be struggling the rest of my trip because, and, and it wasn't, it was, it was pretty reasonable. And my partner said, was it, was it bad? And I said, well, it was better than men's warehouse, but not quite Armani, you know? So it's, you know, it was, it worked, but I never would have like thought to like, even think about that. Had I not just been open to like, say, okay, whatever's coming my way, I'm going to accept it and I'm going to roll with it and I'm going to make it the best I can. I think that's really the biggest thing that I took away was being open to whatever, you know, I ran into and, and accept it and embrace it. And now you have like an authentic, beautiful suit. Oh, I love my suit. <laughs> I absolutely love my suit. I wore it to a wedding. I wore it to a wedding. A wedding and a funeral. Yeah. The person who got married knew about the suit and knew that it was my father's funeral. She's like, that's, she was like, 
it's really nice. <laughs> you know? and, and it's really an honor for me that you wore it to my wedding. And I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. You know, that's, it should bring that. It should be about joy. It should be about, you know, honoring you, my dad all at the same time. It's great. Perfect. Works out. What was your dad's funeral like? Oh, that's a bad question, Rena. <laughs> it's not a bad question. It's a good question. It was standard. Let me put it that way. <laughs> it was pretty standard. One of my cousins says that we're Irish. I'm not sure if I believe her, but but it, it was nowhere close to an Irish wake. I actually wrote a eulogy for my dad, and uh, my mom said, "No, we're not doing that. We're not speaking." And, and you know, whatever the reasons are, it's, you know, I. It was another reason why it was good for me not to be there because I think I would have flipped out. It's like, no, I'm reading this in my dad's voice. You know, this is good. Is there anything offensive in it? She's like, no. It's like, we're just not doing that. And so so it was it was hard from that standpoint is that I, my dad was really good at making friends and not just like people that you know, but like, he, like I said, I, he knew me. He knew the people around him as well. And he took time to learn who they were and decipher what their needs were and help them, whatever that was. And I didn't feel like that was honored enough at his funeral. It was hard for me, but it was, you know, it was kind of where my mom was at. And so I said, okay, it's not about me. It's about mom mostly. And I'll just, I'll just live with it, <laughs> but I'm going to put the eulogy in the book. So it'll be, so probably, hopefully more people see it than had I spoken to it at the, at the funeral. It's amazing that you wrote it though. And that was really amazing to you that you're respectful of her wishes. That's big of you. You know, most of the time it's not about us, <laughs> whatever it is. It's not about us. You know, it's one of the reasons that I felt a real connection with you when I first met you on Instagram is that it wasn't about you. It was about what other people and what was going around you and the people that are going around you. And, and I, I enjoy that. I enjoy networking. I feel like I've got that from my dad, but with a purpose to really be a part of something and participate in what's going on in people's lives is one of the reasons why I think he knew it would probably be best if I wasn't there. <laughs> and that's fine. I was like, the SOB knew I shouldn't be here. It's just not worth it, right? It's not worth making a scene. It's not worth telling off the pastor that never met him in his whole entire life, you know, who stands up there and talks about this or that about my dad and you've never met him. You spent, you know, half an hour, hour with my mom and my brother, my sister, and you have the right to do what? So that was hard, but it was just like, I'm, it's just not worth it. I wonder what he would have added to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. That would have been fun. We, my son and I actually talked several years ago about actually doing a podcast with him about wrestling and we never got around to doing it. My son got really busy, but, but we talked about how much fun that would be to like have dad's reaction to matches today because it's so different than what it was when my dad was watching it in the fifties. And so it, we thought about that, but we never made it happen. That would have been that would have been excellent and super fun. That's a funny story. We went and saw WrestleMania three, the big one where Hulk Hogan slammed down during the giant. And we went to what was called back then closed circuit. So we went to the convention center downtown Indianapolis and watched it while it was being broadcast live from Detroit. And there was a, an elderly woman sitting in front of us who was just up and down out of her seat, running up and down the aisle. She was just going crazy. If you watch press wrestling enough and you know what's going on, you can, it's like a country and Western song. You can predict what's coming next. So my dad was like verbally saying out loud, loud enough for this woman to hear it what was going to happen next. <laughs> and eventually, and she kept on turning her head going, how do you, how do you, you know, and she finally was like, how do you know that? It's like, well, you know, <laughs> it's, 
not that hard. But if you're if you believe the illusion and you're into the illusion that it's real, that that's tough. And back in the '80s, they were still trying to make it so that that illusion was real, and it's not anymore. Yeah, we had a good time. Oh, that's sweet. Any other favorite bucket list items, or have you checked off any recently? I'm just working on my book. I'm attempting to learn how to play the ukulele. Crashing my friend's wedding in Costa Rica was huge for me. That was a lot of fun. Crashing a wedding had been on my list. Like I said, I had two friends that I've been friends with forever. We attempted to crash a class reunion in in Arizona when we were visiting once. And it was semi-successful, but not really. So I had that in me, like, I want to crash a wedding. So two of the the people that I met on the Camino that were engaged at the time decided they were going to have a destination wedding for like a small group of people of 50. They walked quicker to Santiago than I did. And when they got to, when all my friends got to Santiago, they kind of handed out, not handed out, but verbally invited everybody to come. When a couple of days before we had a whole conversation about we should all just crash their wedding because it was supposed to be a small destination wedding. And so when I got back like a month later, I started talking to, to people I knew. And it's like, hey, we're going to crash this wedding. And they're like, uh, we all got invited. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's on now. I, this is this is happening, right? So my partner and I, we went down there and spent the week in Costa Rica. And then the night before we left, crashed their wedding. So it was a lot of fun. And they, they loved it. They absolutely thought it was, you know, the most stellar thing. Because I made them think I was going to be in Europe at the time. And all sorts of, I was, I lied up out the wazoo to get them to think that I wasn't going to be able to make it. So it was a good time. The reaction is awesome. The bride just screamed at the top of her lungs. And the groom was just sitting there like stunned, like, what's going on right now? <laughs> they said it was a great present to them. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, okay. So one final question. I know something that you ask is four words to describe you. I'm interested, what are the four words to describe you or what are the four words to describe your father? I'll try to do me. Intentful, passionate, learning, and adventurous. I think those are the words I would use to describe myself. My dad would probably be at the top of the list would be loyal, husband, father, and grandfather. It's just, that's the easy one. That's, That's what he was all about. He loved, he had 11 grandchildren and he loved every single one of them. Do you think he understood what legacy was? Wow, that's a deep question. I think he did, but I think he also expected that you would figure that out on your own. Like he had his legacy and what he wanted, but that he wouldn't, he wasn't going to prescribe that to you and what that looks like for you. Or, or there weren't ex, maybe the best way to say that is that there weren't expectations, right? There weren't expectations of you know carrying some kind of legacy on, even though I have his middle name, he has, you know, his middle, he has his grandfather's middle name. I don't think there was a whole lot of expectation that you'd do things a certain way, which I think is good. He loved all three of his children very differently. And I think that we've we've allowed him to do that in some ways, and as well as his grandchildren. He loved all all eleven of his grandchildren very differently, each one differently, where they were at. I think that's super important is finding where you are and other people and just meeting them there. And if that's all you get, that's all you get. And he was pretty good at that. My dad will love that. And speaking of my dad, is there anything that you would like to ask him? Oh, but of course, I want to know what's on his bucket list. That's that's easy. That, that's simple. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. Nobody's asked him that. Good. And my good. dad has a sense of adventure. So I am curious I'm, to know what adventure too. he would like to go on. Yeah, I'm anxious to hear his that's, response for sure. That's a good one. Okay, well, now it's time for you to promote away. Like I said, the podcast is called Crossing It Off Podcast. It's available everywhere as normal. You can find the things that I cross off my list on Instagram at crosser.offer. And then I also offer coaching services that got 
couple books coming out and some online classes and you can find all that at the website. I can't wait to read that book. It sounds absolutely fantastic. And I just want to give you a compliment because not only are you an amazing host, an amazing storyteller, but you are an amazing engager. And that is something that I feel like needs to be taught to most. Yes. Because you're the same, right? You get it. uh, Oh yeah. That was definitely like after the second day we had been interacting on Instagram, I'm like, yep, she gets it. You know, there's just like, it's wonderful because there's like things you don't have to say or you know, there are expectations of some things. And it, it was really nice to start getting you to know you better online. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Well, this is Roger Williams. And a shrine to his dad. Isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that perfect for your show? The key word is empathy. Can a single event change our lives? Or a series of dramatic experiences change our lives? The answer is emphatically yes. Isn't it ironic that someone that could have trouble with their parent, or whether it's a mother or whether it's a father, could have the same issues or problems with their son or daughter, where that relationship <laughs> becomes their legacy, where the streak isn't broken until something happens. Understanding and being able to understand that we're all human and that really getting all the facts and the understanding of what a person is in that position can really change something. And I think he waited till he was really 32 years old to really reconnect with his father. And that's because he saw the kind of father he was, or really a son to his own mother, where he was really there for her during a very crucial time in her life, where it, it opened his eyes to having more understanding and sympathy. And isn't that also what we all have to be able to do, is be able to sometimes see through the blockage of even our own shortcomings that we then pass on to others, because we don't really even understand the whole story. And he didn't want that to happen with his own son and tried to see if he could make amends a lot earlier and be able to be a better father to his son. And just like in certain cases, having a difficult relationship with one parent can rub off where you have a difficult relationship again with one of your own children. And somehow we got to figure out how to have an event that can occur where both people can see eye to eye and see that better to tag team and be together than to be separate. What do you think of that, Michael? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and what's also, he has a podcast now, relates to people. But look how people that are world-traveled, that get excited about new adventures and experiencing new places, talking to people and listening to them, and having the patience to listen and learn continuously through our lives, that's how you gain wisdom. And I like how he also said, every time we think about ourselves, find out that we have a lower rating. It's when we think about many people and getting more and more people involved in our lives. Guess what? Our rating goes up. Our wisdom rating goes up. Our higher rating for humanity goes up the more people that get involved with each other and hear each other out. Then you're able to come up with better solutions and better points of view. If you brainstorm with a larger group of people, hopefully in a, in a positive way, okay, and not where we're attacking each other, that doesn't get it, get us anywhere. That just keeps, you know, our turning our tires in the same place. 
We have to figure out how we can come up with better answers so that we keep the ball rolling or we keep the car or the movement moving. And there's a lot of people get hung up on just thinking about how it benefits just themselves. And they're losing out on a much more enriched life. Isn't it ironic again that even though he was cut off with his point of view towards his own father, that he still enjoyed the wrestling matches and enjoyed the connection when they were doing events spiritually together. And part of our legacy, whether we like it or not, is to have some type of continuum. And we have to work at it because it's not automatic. You could be in a business that you run for 100 years, but if you don't have children or relatives that you're close to that's going to take it over, it dies. You have to have people that are going to be involved. However, that doesn't mean that that's the only legacy. It's running a family business, even though we've talked about that before. But the fact is, is that part of our legacy is to see our children whether they decide to take on a different profession, is that they keep the learning and the communication and the wisdom of what's been passed on and give opportunities to future generations. That's how we continue to live, because our human bodies have only a limited time on the shelf before we expire. We want to have a real meaningful life. We have to figure out a way to have the continuum. Otherwise, we might ask the question, why are we here? I heard you singing with grandma today. That was cute. And she was all enlightened today. We had a disastrous day yesterday, just 24 hours before. And the next day was one of the happiest days in her life. How can that be? Over an unbelievable event. That's what's beautiful about life is that we can be resilient to overcome an event. And also a certain event can steer us into a better direction. It really wakes us up. And makes everybody come together and come up with a better answer. Sometimes we've been able to have disasters occur, whether it's a flood or a fire or a a war, and come up with a better solution for the future. That's what our job is to do. And when in doubt, better call daddy. What do you still want to cross off your list? Part of, as you know, my bucket list is I would love to also be able to travel more and be able to continue to gain wisdom points. And the way to do that is to get involved and be able to experience the stories and live it and be in these places where history has been made. It's one thing to read about it. It's another thing about being there and being part of it and doing it. I want to always be a doer and experience as much as I can. And I also never want to stop learning. And hopefully this show will also be a stimulant to others that want to listen and learn. And on the Better Call Daddy show, this is an opportunity for everyone to also be able to express themselves and be the best that they want to be and tell us about it. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 